Between the Chapters, a weekly podcast discussion focusing on a chapter of the book, 25 Years of EdTech, written by Martin Weller. Here's your host, Laura Pasquini. Well, welcome to, where are we at? Chapter 19. It's 2012. And we're going to talk about massive open online courses, or MOOCs, uh, or I call them MOOCs. I'm with uh, Roland Mo, Sukena Walji, Dave Cormier. Welcome, friends. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. That 2012 seems so long ago in the pandemic life we live. So I think we should reflect back to 2012 itself. Where were you at? Was MOOCs part of your vernacular? And how were you involved in it? In 2012, MOOCs were a little bit of a twinkle in my eye um, rather than something that was really in front of me. But I was at that time enrolled in my master's in online and distance education at the Open University, in fact, with Martin. So it was a very interesting time. And I, as a student um, in educational technology, um, MOOCs were becoming more known and I had an inkling. And then one of the courses um, encouraged us to really explore the MOOC phenomenon further. And that's really when I started intellectually engaging. And we had an experience where Martin ran one of the modules we were enrolled with enrolled in as a MOOC um, with some of the students um, as MOOC learners and some of the students as enrolled learners. And so we had a kind of experience as well. But prior to that, I had been involved in using OpenCourseWare and OER. And at that time in 2012, it felt a little bit like an expansion of that you know, um, and, and I knew of the open courses, such as the ones David worked with um, and offered. So it was it was kind of in, I was immer- begin- beginning to be more immersed in that environment and, and feeling quite excited about it. So uh, by 2012, I was exhausted of MOOCs. Uh, we were in the midst of a 33-week MOOC called Change 11, which was a terrible, terrible idea. It was also a bad name because it actually went into 2012. Um, but we had this idea that uh, the MOOCs we were doing were too short, uh, and so we should be doing longer ones, which just for the record is a bad idea. Um, and so um, at the same time, as of uh, certainly 2011, when 165,000 decided to join some folks at um, in California in a course, uh, and I believe, as best as I've been able to trace it back, Audrey Waters called that a MOOC. Suddenly the work that we were doing got attached to the... Um, multiple choice questionnaires that were being done by giant universities. And uh, so suddenly um, I was talking an awful lot about MOOCs in 2012. So I was getting phone calls from lots of people asking about its impact on the history of education and what it meant and what we're going to do with it. So um, it was kind of a confusing time. It was one of those weird things where something you're doing in your backyard becomes um, really relevant to people who don't actually care about what you're doing in your backyard. So it was a super, super interesting time for me. I came became aware of Dave's work th- uh, right around this time. Um, I was uh, ABD um, towards my doctorate. And at the time, I was looking at doing something about um, authentic interactions and assessments in non-formal learning spaces, specifically museums. So how could we better engage these physical spaces and think about them in terms of the formalized education, take the best of what you have in that immersive environment, but 
try and map out some of the things that we expect that we're supposed to have evidence for of learning. Um, how can you kind of find a magic middle rather than what David Wiley would call a mediocre middle? Um, and it was an interesting topic, uh, but as we were, so we would come together as a group and, and have a couple days. There was a writing coach in there. There was a stats person in the year, and we just had time to kind of sit and think. And the chair of the program, Linda Poland, uh, kind of noted that there was all this conversation out of what was going on at Stanford. Um, and she said to Dave, what, what you had just said, like, how do they think they're going to make money? These are free courses. Um, and I thought it was fascinating. One, you had this uh, acronym that was really driving so much of the conversation because it sounded fancy, but it was one of the least fancy acronyms you could you could possibly imagine. Um, and there was such a disconnect between all of the research behind that. And I think it's a good point to note. Um, my undergraduate, one of my undergraduate English teachers was Brian Alexander. Um, and so his work in talking about this and, you know, uh, writing about it. And that's how I came to uh, learn of Dave's video, uh, the YouTube viral sensation um, that talked about this. And so you had this huge disconnect, which was just fascinating to somebody who could do any sort of research they wanted at that moment. And so I just started reading about MOOCs. We had time. I wasn't, I hate to say this, I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on uh, in the classes I was sitting in. So I was sitting and reading articles about MOOCs and it was a lit review. So I was writing down my lit review and I started a blog, which was allmooks.wordpress.com, all MOOCs all the time. And I did that for about six weeks and I had maybe 45 or 50 uh, followers on Twitter. Um, I'd been on Twitter a couple of years. I uh, had, had done nothing on there. And then I was posting these things out there. And one day I log on and I have 300 followers uh, because George Siemens had retweeted something that I had written um, about uh, connectivism. And that got people to MOOCs. And suddenly here's this person who's just been doing research for two months on a topic. Uh, and I was getting phone calls from uh news outlets and organizations because there was no critical writing on the topic in one specific place. Um, so where George and Dave and others had these blogs, they were covering all sorts of things. This blog was only covering MOOCs. And so people went there and it was a good thing that my lit review was kind of, you know, I was, I was doing it right because I suddenly had all this evidence out there on the web. Um, and that got me wedded to MOOCs for three years. Uh, I could not uh, get away from that for a long time. All right. So we've heard where the, can. I've, I've heard that you drank the MOOC Kool-Aid, Roland Sukina. You had the evangelist. I blame Martin. Thank him. Blame him. And Dave, what happens when you write one explainer video? You just get uh, contacted by all the news outlets. Is that what happens? So, yeah. And I mean, actually, and my name's attached to actually making up the word too. So sorry for all of you who have been stuck with it. Um, but um, <laughs> that did happen. And it did happen just that the George and I were in a conversation and I just said, oh, well, you guys are doing this thing this summer. Let's call it blah, blah, blah. And yeah. So suddenly I get a call from the Wall Street Journal and they're like, hey, uh, how are people going to make money from MOOCs? And I'm like, you mean the free courses we're talking about? I don't think there's a business model there as far as I understand business or model. Um, and that's that's kind of where it was. I get these conversations and I was wholly unprepared as um a participant in higher ed to take advantage of any of these things. So I didn't really take advantage of it. So I mostly said, no, this is a terrible idea. And these courses don't actually represent what MOOCs are, uh, which was the position I was still holding in 2012 um, was that these big courses that are being done at Stanford or MIT or wherever, they're not 
MOOCs because they're not open. They're not open as in pedagogy for sure, for sure. And because of that, I don't even consider them to be MOOCs, which was why they stopped calling because I wasn't telling them what they wanted me to say. <laughs> so I, I guess I'll share my experience. I actually knew MOOCs before 2012. And I think I, I thought it just blew up in uh, whatever. And so in my little Canadian realm, Alec Koros did the EC. I did look at my, my blog, EC. And I, A31, yeah, and CCK, which is connected. C- uh, connective knowledge, connective, connectivism and connective knowledge. Thank you. And I did the 09 and maybe the 08, but that started in 07. So I just knew these were good community spaces where I could learn from my peers. I never associated it with any model, um, but this meant something in different parts of the world. So this is my Canadian stance at the time. I just moved to the US and I was kind of like, oh, look at us sharing. And then um, I think the idea of business model or impact, uh, I was never deeply ingrained in it early days, like you roll in all MOOCs all the time. But what was that like? I think over in South Africa because that must have been a totally different conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can say a little bit about um, how I, where, where I went to after you know my my masters. So in 2013, I joined the University of Cape Town, and at that time, they the senior leadership were deciding whether to join the MOOCs movement. They had been invited to by the big platform companies. And I happened to get attached to the team that uh, wrote a position paper. And we looked at all the different platforms and we looked at the business models. And we, in the end, made a recommendation to say, yes, give us some money. We want to experiment with this. We think there's some something here. Um, we don't know whether we'll make money. We're being quite frank with that, but this is a, an opportunity for innovation for a, a university like the University of Cape Town, which is a sort of a residential research intensive university, but it's an opportunity for us to, you know, play in this space. And I think at that stage for the senior leadership, there was this, you know, wanting to be part of this club or this group of universities who were being kind of wooed and um, and so it was accepted much to my surprise and we were given um, some uh, good funding and and I became the MOOC team project manager and so I ran the project at UCT along with some colleagues and we really started from scratch we employed instructional designers we set up studios we developed um, production facilities and you know we over time have um, got co- uh, courses on uh, Coursera and FutureLearn. At the beginning we said we wanted to do a multi-platform um, engagement. We didn't want to quote put all our eggs in one basket. We wanted to experiment and play and it's been a really quite it's considered to be quite successful in the institution. We don't make very much money. Um, that wasn't really um, I mean that, that many people thought we would you know like millions and whatever but but we didn't we didn't really couldn't see the business models at the beginning but it did allow us to build in-house capacity it has um, allowed us to uh, um, showcase you know global south scholarship teaching um, courses from an African university on in a global platform and it helped us build in-house capacity um, and with all of that with um, we kept researching so we took a critical stance we were not convinced by some of these conversations around you know Martin mentions around disruption I mean I had already been sensitized to that having studied with Martin anyway so it was it was um, and I continued that um, relationship anyway but we 
You know, we, I think the context in South Africa is different. Our participation rate in higher education is something like 17% of eligible people. It's low. So we were interested um, in what can these types of courses, non-formal, informal offer to groups of people who, for whatever reason, have very little other access to forms of higher education, notwithstanding the issues around connectivity, the digital divide. So it's been a very sort of complex, um, considered, um, you know, emergent journey. And that we haven't, the story's not finished yet for us either, as it is for other people. And I think maybe we might discuss later what the COVID experience has done to to MOOCs as well, which I think would, might, might be something we come back to. So my engagement was then really in running a MOOC team in an institution formally, partnering with platforms, engaging with them, kind of dealing with some of the issues, then seeing how the platforms moved to uh, micro-credentials and online degrees and the kind of um, engagements and interactions. And so I've been very much part of that kind of insider conversation. Um, as well as being able to research it. So I think I've been really privileged to have been able to do that. Um, yeah, so that that's really where um, in, in, my, in the South African context. But there are relatively few universities in South Africa who can afford to make, um, you know, MOOCs that meet the production values. Um, and so I'm very mindful of that. And um, what I did find interesting and that was touched on in, in Martin's chapter was how the MOOC model is being kind of repurposed in localized contexts, so not with big platforms necessarily, not with those business models, but somehow the form as it is, a kind of type of online learning, which you can critique as well, um, has been adopted in different contexts um, and localized. And I think that's that's been really interesting. So I wonder one of the, in 2012 one of the other we, uh, weird things that ended up happening is uh, I got invited with uh, Martin actually and Grania Canole and George Siemens and a bunch of uh, Stephen Downs a bunch of other Yahoos uh, to go to New Delhi and have a conversation we were wholly unprepared to have about uh, widening participation and scale and the potential for MOOCs to actually have an impact in communities that don't have. Uh, consistent internet connection. It was particularly the whole conference that we were invited to speak at was about the potential for MOOCs and cell phones, right? So because you've got people in communities where, you know, in some cases there's no electricity, but those people still have access to cell phones. Um, there was this belief that somehow the MOOC model could be something that actually did widen participation for people. So open as in widen participation in that, in that, open university sense of the word open. Did you see much of that? Have you seen much of that in the last seven or eight years in South Africa? Has it been something that you think has contributed to a widening of participation? Um, I think it's it would be um, disingenuous to say that it's contributed at scale because in South Africa, um, you know, online education, online learning, it's not, it was not very well recognized or very well known. And the main barriers would be connectivity and the cost of data. So it would be, I would be disingenuous to say it, 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 it met what those early conversations were. I mean, I think in line with the data that we know about, um, 
MOOCs and those courses have been used by people who perhaps already have some education and perhaps already have the capital to be able to learn um, in those ways. So I don't think the data and the student profile in South Africa is significantly different. However, in our research at the uh, sort of uh, individual level, um, what we have found is that students are making incredible leaps of um, ingenuity to study via cell phones um, where, they, where they have been able to. And sometimes it's because there is no other alternative. Um, and so there are groups of students, um, especially in healthcare or in education, teachers, healthcare workers who have been able to reuse some of the MOOC offerings. But um, at this stage, I think I think over the last seven years, maybe in the last couple of years, we might see that happening. So, for example, recently in the past year, the South African government, one of the uh, government um, departments, has partnered with Coursera to offer um, particular courses for skills development and digital skills, for example. And I know organizations like the Commonwealth of Learning have been doing that as well. So that's where people are trying scale um, and almost using the MOOC platforms as a type of courseware and then the platform affordances in terms of, of um, administering the courses. But I, I don't think it had that sort of democratic, you know, flowering of sudden, I mean, I th yeah, that, that I, I was never going to be the case in South Africa, given the inherent inequalities, rural, urban, um, race, you know, um, all of those things, those inequalities, it probably exacerbated those inequalities until you do something about it, um, actively do something about it. So just having MOOCs out there and enabling access is just a very small part. And if you're serious, um, then it's around more targeted interventions. So wrapping MOOCs, uh, we did some research on this where uh, we found that some organizations were gathering people together and facilitating MOOCs, helping people get uh, get together in libraries, for example, so that connectivity and devices would be available, but also a facilitator who could scaffold the teaching and learning process, for example, because you know, you've got language issues and you have issues around the ability to learn in the MOOC, you know, those MOOC, that MOOC, that particular type of MOOC pedagogy, which is a self-actualized learner who knows how to learn, who can manage time and those particular types of um, characteristics. Where do we find those learners, uh, Sukena? I, I can't find those anywhere <laughs> these days. Well, um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're, they're, well, they're the, they're the ones that we talk about resilience and all of these sort of like troublesome words, I think, you know. But um, I will say that the, the research project that we have running, Moot Takers in Africa, we are only interviewing people who have completed. So, and that's been really, really interesting to see what it was about them that helped them complete. And it seems to be intense motivation and an intense need for that, whether it's because they they are supplementing studies or supplementing courses because they need to get on or they want to move into a new field. Um, and surprisingly, 
you know, these groups of learners are not particularly complaining about access and connectivity, even though we've had some incredible stories of people having to uh, work through power cuts and, you know, have solar panels and those kinds of things. So, it, it's a much, you know, we've, we try to, to move away from a deficit model of looking at learners to actually see why they were doing these courses. I mean, why were they bothering and what value were they getting out of them? And then on that, then we can, uh, we're finding that there are still structural barriers. So for example, if you complete a MOOC, you should be able to get a certificate for a reasonable price, I think. That's not always the case. Some people might not have credit cards. If you convert US dollars to South African rands, it's quite expensive. So, you know, the, the, this is a very mixed, mixed story um, going forward. That's kind of what, in a microcosm, um, what was so fascinating to me about this conversation in 2012, because you have that connectivist energy that has gone, that started in 2008, and you have the pieces of that that are continuing today and the research that's going on. But you have this flimsy four-letter acronym that is trying to hold all things to all people together. And the New York Times is calling this the year of the MOOC. And hundreds of millions of dollars of venture capital are going into places. Um, and the, the colonialist aspect of some groups of colleges saying for $250,000, you can have access to put your courses that you're still going to have to pay to put out there so that we can send them out to learners who are going to uh, be engaging this on a cell phone um, without adequate Wi-Fi, without adequate uh, ability to do the connectivist things that the MOOC was supposed to do in the first place. Um, and so how for me, how were all of these pieces supposed to fit together? And I guess the 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 piece was they weren't. Uh, there was no way it was ever going to. So this was just a promise that was made that um, got some hype and, and raised some money. And it's great that there's still research happening. It's great that there's still pieces coming out of this. Um, and I, I, I wonder, did that hiccup, and I would love to get uh, what, what you guys think of it, was that boom from 2012 to 2014, 2015, was that, that phenomenon um, beneficial to the idea of open education, of, uh, um, you know, multimedia learning, of, con of connectivism, um, or was it detrimental? And uh, uh, so, Kanye, I know you mentioned um, what this thing, how we think about this in terms of the pandemic. Uh, what are the MOOC lessons that are, um, that are, what are the MOOC lessons we are thinking of now in the way that we're designing courses online, are they taking the best of what was going on from MOOCs or are they taking the worst of what was going on from MOOCs? Uh, I don't have an answer. I think it's a little bit of both, but if it trended one way, I think it would be in the wrong way. It's funny, my 2012 self, I'm reading a blog post. I was so prolific back then, I blocked. Um, I, I actually asked, can online education and MOOCs really replace the organic interactions in a face-to-face -face classroom environment? And I think this is a question we're still asking when we've gone to remote, emergency remote teaching, online hybrid, high flex, I don't know, you name the term, insert it. And I think we're at a different place in 2012. But I thought the only good thing about MOOCs is you could study 
online in different types of contexts, different types of learners. And I was fortunate to work with George Velichanos and a few others for the digital um, learning and social media research group to study like what other things besides finishing a MOOC, like that's really not as interesting. I want to know why people are in it. And you said it's who can, it's to tool up, it's upskill and work, or it's, I can't access this because I'm in a fully, like I'm in Portugal in a very mobile learning and I can on demand learn at my own pace. And I can get still feel like I'm in the classroom because we've designed some really good quality online learning. So this had more interesting outcomes for research, although I laughed and shared with the group the MOOC research project of 2013. That conference has now like been co-opted by some other digital camera company. Um, but the idea was to s- study these digital learning spaces and understand different types of learners around the world was actually kind of a new and novel thing that made um, online learning and study of that pedagogy just more accessible in some ways as a researcher. Dave's like, no, I disagree with you, Laura. Well, it's not that. It's I have such conflicting opinions about this. Like, <laughs> maybe, maybe just a little background. If if you guys will excuse the old guy, because I got the gray beard now, and I always look at myself, and I'm like, you're the old guy talking now. Like, look at you. You become that dude. For George and Stephen, uh, George Siemens and Stephen Downs, the first that Cisco eight first so-called MOOC, and there are lots of people who would say there's lots of online learning that happened before that. There definitely was, but in that particular strand of that conversation. Uh, Future of Learning um, was 2007, and that was run in Moodle at the University of Manitoba and by George. And there were just such a rich conversation that came out of it. There were so many unexpected conversations that that led to CCK08 in the first so-called MOOC in the summer of 2008. For me, they were very much on the connectivism conversation and George and Stephen, for those of you who are deep into this conversation, have very specific differences in terms of how they mean that word. And this was very much a way of them arguing this out. Um, And my participation in that first course was I played uh, referee basically on Fridays and every Friday I sat down and we had a conversation together and I tried to keep the conversation moving because I did a whole bunch of interview conversation stuff at the time. But for me, it was very much about web as platform. So it wasn't about trying to, it wasn't emancipation. It wasn't really about widening participation for me at the, at the start. It was that my experience with EdTech Talk, which was an online educational technology webcast, was that people from all over the world came together. And my participation in that community made me know more. I didn't know why exactly. I didn't exactly understand how that was so much more valuable than my master's degree. But that community participation meant something. And the problem is, is creating a community is exhausting and the responsibility is huge and it never goes away and it gets worse the longer you have it. So online particularly, so the the categories harden and in order to maintain a we, people always seem to need to make a them. And then that community gets more and more insular the longer it lives. And that's been my experience with online communities. But that first burst, that first six or 10 weeks can be amazing. And that's, to me, what a MOOC was, was a way to create an artificial community for six to 10 weeks for people, or 33 weeks if you're an idiot, where, you know, a group of people who really care about a project can use the web as platform, really care about a topic or a project or whatever, can use web as platform to get in voices from all over to really enrich in a conversation. So that was never going to mesh 
with 165,000 people doing multiple choice questions at Stanford. Like it was never going to happen. And when you look at the foundations of what Piotr Mitros, who is the guy who designed that first course, what he was doing at Stanford, he is a mastery education model guy. He thinks that things are true or not true. And the process of education is giving information to people, right? And he tried to design a platform that did that as best as possible. And that sort of became the platform at for edX platform or whatever. But that is built into the model that the teacher is the expert and everybody else is listening. Two more fundamentally opposed models, my meandering community story and mastery learning could probably not be imagined. And they live at the core of the MOOC story. So if you read the research that we did in 2010 on MOOCs, the, the sort of, it's the one that people cite. It's the, the reason why my citations are as high as they are is because of that one piece that we did in 2010 when nobody cared about MOOCs. Um, but if you read that, there is nothing about mastery learning in there. There's nothing about any of the things that are recognized by 99% of the population as a MOOC. So to me, they're just, they're fundamentally different things, right? And therefore, when you try to do research on them, I, I pity people doing research on this. Because then they pull out one piece like that and they're like, but this has nothing to do with this. Like, how are these two things called the same thing? Well, blame Audrey. That's who I blame. And just uh, technically the first person, because I, in my dissertation, I tried to trace when the word jumped, when, when MOOC went from CCK to Stanford and the place that it was traced, so Laura Papineau gets the most uh, oh. notoriety in the mainstream literature for writing the year of the MOOC in the New York Times in 2012. And I reached out to her and she noted that um, she got that from George Siemens from a 2011 blog uh, about Stanford offering a course and putting that there. Um, the blog no longer exists. If you, if you look, if, if I'll, I'll, I'll put it in the, in the chat, but the blog no longer uh uh, direct, but you can find it at web archive. Um, but I think, you know, it's, you had, you had attempts to try and do what you're, what you're talking about, Dave, and there, there's still these places that are doing that. And I, and I, I spent a lot of time, you know, uh, poking at Sebastian Thrun for saying in the future, there will be 10 universities. I think, you know, everybody recognized that these bombastic comments weren't helpful, but now kind of looking back eight years later, how helpful was it to kind of, you know, hit the pinata on that one, because what were we doing in that space? Um, I was brought on to work with a Coursera MOOC uh, on some research. Um, it didn't end up going to fruition, and I'll tell you why. Um, so this group, what they had done is they had their content, and then they put people together in groups, about 25,000 people, and they put people together in groups to build artifacts. And so um, I had a meeting with people who ran the course and somebody from Coursera, and they literally had a dump of data that showed me the time people were invested watching videos and the time people had these and how many people turned in submissions in these different places. And I said, where's all the information on the artifacts that were built? Where are the groups that were happening? At this time, those Facebook groups was the real big place where things were going on. Where's the info on the Facebook groups? Where are the blogs that were built? Where are the teaching resources? Because this, this was a, a, blog, a MOOC that was designed for people who would end up teaching later. And they didn't know what to do. They had no idea how to engage with that information. It wasn't a matter of they didn't want to. It was like what you were saying, Dave. It was just their, their schema was so far away from that. And I wonder, as we're having this conversation, we're talking a lot about the research that's going on. 
it's difficult for me because it's fascinating to hear what's been done. But then, as you've said, 99% of the population, this isn't what they think about when they think about a MOOC. And so what have we missed? What, what, how, where were the places that we could have intervened to move the needle in a better direction? Or was that even possible? Was this just a situation that uh, uh, the kind of corporate manner of thinking about education was going to take something, uh, adapt itself to it, use the best language of it? You've got these very free free flowing people who are doing these things and then uh, make it in their own image. Um, I was interested in what Martin was saying. Um, I mean, just to comment, I reread the chapter and I thought, gosh, he's more measured than I was expecting him to be, <laughs> or when I remember when I first read it. And he was talking about the kind of multiple uses. And I've been thinking of MOOCs and uh, moving away from the kind of simple single story approach. Um, and it almost seems futile to try and like have one one view even if it's like one view of connectivist MOOCs and one view of whatever the other type that you want to call them. I've forgotten now X MOOCs. Um, and really um, what interested me and Martin's met, gave a few examples of where courses have been used in formal teaching and courses have been used in particular areas. And it's almost as if the, the form, and, and maybe I'm taking a positive view of this, is inspiring different types of use and that people can take it or leave it in terms of the platform. I mean, you can, you know, you can put your materials on, but then you do something else around it. You might, but you don't rely necessarily on the platform to give you what you want. Um, and so it's a sort of design challenge. And one subset of courses that I've, I don't know how I got myself involved with in some is where MOOCs have been used as a form of research dissemination, for example. And we've had a few of these come our way at, at the University of Cape Town. And in fact, I taught a MOOC myself with a group um, on the Unbundled University on the FutureLearn platform, which was a research dissemination MOOC for two weeks, where we wanted to, to talk about um, the future of higher education. Is it being unbundled? Um, and what is the role of marketization? And we offered it as a MOOC. We didn't have to. We could have done a conference. We could have spent the money on other things, but we chose to do a MOOC. Um, and so, there's a particular function for that. You know, it becomes something else. And I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that it's just been really interesting to see the different ways that people have taken the form. Um, and I'm just, um, what you were saying, Dave, about the kind of pedagogy. I mean, I have noticed that I've worked quite intensively on the Coursera and FutureLearn platforms. FutureLearn is the British platform owned. Uh, partly owned by the Open University. And the level of engagement we get um, on the, for our courses on that platform in terms of discussion is very different from the level of engagement on Coursera, for example, because there is a, a sort of inbuilt pedagogical invitation in the kind of mastery learning, um, which, and, 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 and it's really, really interesting how different it is. And it might not be, and then some of the courses might, might not be the kind of radical connectivist sort of community. And I really like the way you said that you bring together a community for, um, well, maybe not 13 weeks, but six weeks. But the level of discussions and the conversations and even the MOOC that I, I taught, I was just amazed at the depth of, of conversation because 
the, the, and the, the purpose of it was just a discussion. And, and yes, it was not, you know, people didn't write blogs and, and so on, but um, it was, it, it, it met its use case, I suppose. And I think maybe people are thinking like that um, and looking at like how they might use the platforms um, for different use cases rather than as is intended by the platforms. So almost a sort of subversive approach in some ways. This sounds similar to a future conversation we'll have on the between the chapters. It was the conversation that people will hear next week around textbooks. Like we're we're thinking of a platform, we're thinking of a space, a digital space is going to save us. And I really like that you've touched on like the richness of what community building is. So it could be a community of inquiry that we know or community of practice is really what some of those early MOOCs. Uh, let's define a couple things because if I have listeners that are like, what's an X MOOC? An X MOOC is created by a producer. How would you define it? So I think it, uh, my understanding is that as opposed to the C MOOC, which was the sort of original quote, connectivist MOOCs around community, the X MOOC is the kind of mastery Okay. approach uh, where you are feeding content or offering content and quizzes and it's it's self-paced and and, and those I were the early definitions that people used to distinguish I found I don't find them particularly useful anymore either from a research purpose or when you're talking to people who are thinking about creating courses um, but I think they had a sort of early use as a kind of distinguisher between perhaps the kind of philosophical underpinnings of why you might actually even want to um, offer large-scale online courses. I think this speaks back to answer Roland's question from earlier in terms of what we could have done. I think what happened um, is the community of people who are responsible for answering these questions, so the, the ed tech community, if such a thing exists, um, really kind of turned on itself in 2012. So a whole bunch of people made that distinction, the CMOOC, XMOOCs distinction, in an attempt to try to preserve the purity of the original MOOCs, as opposed to saying, hey, here's this thing that's happening, let's work with it. It was, no, 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 those are those things. You can see that in the blog post you're talking about from George. CMOOC and XMOOCs distinction, as far as I'm concerned, Stephen Downs at least popularized that if didn't come up with it, but it was really about keeping the purity of the thing that they were doing as if it was pure right. in the first place. And the second piece, was there were a whole bunch of people who turned against MOOCs generally because they were popular, <laughs> which seems like such a ridiculous reason to hate something when suddenly we had this chance to make, I think, some really good, and I think it, it maybe behind closed doors, I think more of this stuff happened, but publicly it really became, that's not what we do, right? And so a lot of the sort of bigger voices in our community very much, as opposed to saying, here's this thing that's happening. Let's see what we can do to shepherd it. They said, here's this thing that's happening and that's totally not what we do. So that thing is a bad thing. And so I think there were a lot of missed opportunities to give good sound guidance at that time. And certainly I've learned from that experience because of that. And, and there were, it's, it's difficult because yeah, I, I, I agree with, with Dave that like some of the things that happened really were to differentiate. And I, I define XMOOC as a pejorative only used by people who believe in CMOOCs to sanctify what they've done. Because if you ask 99% of people and what's the difference between an X and a CMOOC, they'll, today they'll be like, well, what's a MOOC in the first place? But 
there were a lot of problems that came forward. Um, you had the whole debacle um, at San Jose State University where Udacity was brought in to save remedial education um, and just didn't have the skills or competencies or anything in order to be able to do that. And so there were problems that came up that ed tech, whether that's a, a thing or not, saw and was shouting about, uh, but didn't get the, you know, didn't have the the playing field. They didn't have the understanding of, of where that space went. You know, it's unfortunate that the expertise wasn't taken in those places, but I guess my, my fear is we're continuing, especially now in this kind of pandemic and post-pandemic phase of learning, we're starting to repeat those problems that we had with the original MOOC. What we've learned from MOOCs is we can now uh, make really bad uh, slide presentations to force onto people um, and call it education. And that's so counterintuitive to what this whole conversation and what we've been talking about. Like, it's really heartwarming that our conversation about MOOCs has been largely positive today. Who would have guessed that in 2014? You know, and I, I think it says something to Martin that in his chapter, he doesn't punch down, that he tries to be as as balanced about this as possible. So like, you know, with some, with some, uh, uh, hindsight, you know, we're able to to see some different things, but then are we really learning from where those problems came? Because the problem was a it was a hydra that uh, had all sorts of different places, and so if you focused on you know the the learning that was going on in the modalities, you weren't thinking about the uh, marketing problems that were going on there. You weren't thinking about the issues of colonialization that were happening. You weren't thinking about what that did for education from a financial perspective. If you focused on one of those, you weren't thinking about the other pieces. Um, I, I, I mentioned earlier, you know, it was kind of when we the 2012 was when we stopped having nice things, but there is some truth to that because that was this dawning for mass media of what how they could be experts in education. And we didn't get experts. We got people who played them on TV. Um, people never kind of, you know, faked <laughs> until they made it. They're just still faking it. So, and I want to make a really specific example for how that's playing out right now. Please. So if you look at the chegification of, of the university system right now, which I think is probably, uh, other than student engagement, the thing I've heard the most about in the last 10 months, what's happened is we are trying to hold on to our previous educational model the same way that those MOOCs were trying to hold on to a previous educational model eight, 10 years ago, trying to hold on to our dominant power position. The whole idea of web as platform of the MOOC or whatever else is originally conceived is that everything's out there anyway. Why don't we take advantage of that instead of trying to lock it down? Chegg is only, so Chegg is a online collaboratory assignment creation platform otherwise known as a place where students go to cheat and get their answers to their questions. There's a lot of air quotes in that description, just yeah, so people, listeners know. going on there. Um, so Chegg only works if we withhold the answers from students. If we withhold the existing abundance of the internet away from the students and say, don't look at the answers, we're going to give you these questions that made total sense 50 years ago, right? Same problem we tried to make with MOOCs. We did not learn from the fact that openness is not an, it's not, it's not a choice, Right? The, the availability of the information on the internet is not a choice. It is a problem that we need to address. We are not going to ever address that problem by locking it down. That doesn't solve the problem. Right? All it does is create scenarios in which students have to find another way around. And then we send them underground instead of saying, oh, you live in a world where you have too much information and we're going to tell you how to handle it. We say, let's imagine this world of artificial scarcity where it's still 1975 and I can lock all these answers away from you. Same thing we tried to do in 2012, same thing so many people are trying to do in 2021 when they're confronting this new reality of the abundance of the internet. 
I like that. I think we frame things as positive for some people in this, um, our conversation are quite jaded normally. Um, I'm wondering, <laughs> I'll own this. Uh, I own my own jadedness. So it's not just you, Dave. I was wondering though, like, what are we going to take from if I know that Martin didn't intend this book to come out during a pandemic, but there are lessons that we can learn that are similar to the MOOC story. Cause th- there was a good question he posed. He said, what have we learned after um, I think after all the fury died down after 2012, we started learning more interesting things, actually, related to MOOCs. Well, what will we learn this year? Or maybe what questions do we need to ask ourselves, um, the community of teaching, learning, ed tech, and openness that we could apply to where we're at in the pandemic? One of the things, and I don't know whether um, Martin says it in the book, but I, it's quite memorable. I, I remember asking, um, inviting Martin to speak to us about online education and MOOCs. I think it must have been 2014, 2015, and he gave a seminar and there was one particular slide where he contrasted like MOOCs and, you know, online learning. And he talked about the cream bar and he'll know what I mean, which is the level of support that you need to give students. And that's kind of effectively what we're talking about is teaching. And I think that is something that um, kind of comes and goes and and we find different ways of saying how we're going to teach online. But that's really stayed with me around the need to continue to focus on how we're going to teach and support students online, which is cannot. and, And that's for me is the difference between, and I look at the research in our MOOCs, the students who are completing are ones who can for whatever reason. Um, but there are many, many more students who will need proper support, proper um, psychosocial support, not only academic support. I mean, especially I think what we've learned at our university is in the pandemic times where people have gone remote, students are studying in all kinds of home um unequal home circumstances, that it's that level of care and support that is not scalable necessarily. Um, no matter how much you try and do that. And I think that, I mean, that's an issue. It's a conundrum. It's a problem. But it's also a way of distinguishing, I think, between the kinds of online learning that we might want to work on and promote and use what we've learned in MOOCs and MOOC-like environments and all these kind of other, you know, MOOC models um, that that have come about. But I, I remember very clearly back then Martin talking about this sort of um, – the cost of a course is actually in the, it's not the content and the content's already there um, everywhere, you know, whether you create it yourself, but it's the, the, the teaching and the support. And that um, I don't think can be checkified easily, nor would we want to. I think one of the things that uh, the only place that I take issue with Martin um, anywhere in, in, in the history of Martin Weller is there wasn't a chapter on gamification. Um, because this focus on, you know, using gaming um, versus what game means versus game in the sense of manipulating a system for your benefit. That's where the checkification of education comes in that we've created this gamification is education in many ways, because we are giving out a certificate or credential, you know, a, a letter, and we are trying to work into that space. Um, and if you can't scale human interaction then you are creating a system to be gamed. Um, one of the things that continues to come up every year, every two years is somebody saying, how do we have bots uh, grade writing? 
what's the point of writing something if, unless you're writing it for a, for a robot, if you're actually writing something for a human, then a human needs to engage with it. So my hope on these things is we can, if we realize what we want, if we want people to engage, why can't we develop LTI alongside our learning management systems that basically do what Fortnite and before that Call of Duty and before that Warcraft did and you know, put a, put a raid team together to focus on a Google Doc around a specific project. You know, where that technology should be so ubiquitous. If it's too expensive, then we just need to say it. And then we need to say what education is truly about. If it's about a credentialing service, if that's not what it is, we're trying to connect people from around the globe, then we need to spend the money to do that. But the problem there is MOOCs become um, a cost albatross and not a, a loss. Uh, they could become a loss leader rather than a revenue generator. I think the thing that 2012, that one of the positive outcomes that came out of there is that people started asking themselves what education was, you know, and I think the same thing is happening right now. And I think if I was to, to match those two things up against each other, I think the 2012 thing did give us some practice to sort of go, oh, should we be firing presidents because they're not setting up MOOC platforms? Um, or, you know, I remember that one, University of Virginia. Um, or, you know, well, wait a minute, if we can just record us talking and we can automate all the multiple choice questions. What are we doing here? You know, and it, those conversations were happening in 2012 in a way that did not happen to me in 2008 or nine or 10. And so right now in the last 10, 11 months, I've had more conversations with people who are suddenly interested in student engagement. Um, um, I can talk about student engagement now in a way where people actually don't fall asleep. Now, maybe I've gotten suddenly better, but I don't think that's the thing. I think also now that thing of what the value add to the university experience is. Um, and there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's happened that, that also has come up from an administrative standpoint where suddenly for uh, local community universities, for instance, their business model is hugely, hugely threatened by this whole process because suddenly I can stay in the city of Windsor and not go to the University of Windsor, right? So that piece of how the web affects the bottom line is a gateway into us talking about engagement in a way that in 2012, what are you as a faculty member, if you can just be recorded, became a gateway into, hey, what if your classes were interesting for your students? And so I think that we can learn, we can do the same kinds of things now that we were doing in 2012, 13, 14, with just getting access to conversations that people like me weren't normally into and provide that, hey, you know what? Students are people, which at the end of the day was the message I had in 2012. And it's the message I'm giving in 2021. They're humans who are bored when you bore them and interested when you interest them. And that's really the difference, right? Yeah, I like how Martin ended the chapter, which is, he's so prolific and he didn't know he was writing this for the pandemic, but he said it really raised, MOOCs really raised the profile of open education maybe digital learning and all these things that we just never really figured out for teaching pedagogical practice, um, what that means to have resources. They are quote unquote free because the work comes and the labor comes from somewhere, but these are all factors and issues that are quote are still playing out. And this is happening now as we question. Um, I wonder what kind of questions you have for Martin about this chapter or maybe even the community that's listening. Um, they might be an ed tech they could be open ed or they could be just people are like, I just think Dave Cormier is great. And I'm listening to this episode. Like what kind of, I'm just kidding. I don't, I don't want to raise your ego on that one. Uh, what kind of questions do you want to ask and pose maybe from things we're learning now 
or Martin about MOOCs or what we thought MOOCs were at the time? Um, I found it really interesting and um, that he mentioned the role of educational technologists at the end of this chapter and the influence they could have. And if I had read that when it came out, you know, before the pandemic, I might have said, well, you know, that's like um, being a bit um, optimistic. But given what's happened in the last year and, you know, the role of um, units like mine, which is, you know, it's a teaching and learning centre with educational technology and the conversations that I've been drawn in as a result and, and, and colleagues and, you know, suddenly instructional designers are, you know, the most sort of valuable people around um, to get people through. But I would ask him about, like, how do you sustain that? How do you, in an institution, um, continue to influence um, and, and have those conversations? Because my concern is that once, um, you know, we get vaccinated and the pandemic dies down, you know, are we going to go back? Or not we, who is the we? That's another question. But, um, you know, I, I suspect that many, many academics, many teachers, many faculty will just be so relieved um, and so, you know, what, what are the levers that we might have if our goal is to promote better, stu you know, student learning effectively in whatever mode, you know, we, we're in um, sort of online, blended, hybrid, high flex, all of these other things. So that was what interested me that he wrote that then, um, but it seems very relevant now. Yeah, I think uh, for me, what I'd really be interested in, I'd want to dial him down on defining what he thinks a MOOC is um, in the space, because obviously coming from the Open University and uh, the work that was happening there congruent to the stuff coming out of Canada at the time um, in, the, or in the latter part of the first decade of the 21st century. Um, what does MOOC mean then? What did MOOC mean then? What does MOOC mean now? Um, one of the things he notes is that it could be equally beneficial and detrimental. Uh, and for the detrimental, are there things that we can do as a community of educators? We don't have to talk about ed tech because kind of now everybody's involved in ed tech to some extent. How do we broaden that idea of ed tech to bring in the practices that are at the forefront of this book that are the forefront of the conversation we've been talking about here? Mm. I mean, Martin started out in MOOCs, right, in the 1990s. That was, you know, the 15,000 person courses that he was designing and running as his whole star, right? I guess for me with Martin and his sort of, I have four chairs of blah, 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 and his status and his position and stuff. The thing I would ask him is what advice he has for people who are trying to explain this to other people. Like, how is he handling this administratively? Because I think in the next, even going forward in the next year, a whole bunch of people who are reading his book. Uh, which again, he did not know there was going to be a pandemic. Uh, and a lot of people who are going to be, well, the couple of people who end up listening to this podcast will be in that point where they'll have five minutes to explain to somebody what's going on. And I wonder, given how many times he's likely been in that situation in the last five or 10 years, and certainly in the last 10 months, what does that person do with that five minutes trying to explain all of this business, right? Like if they have, is it give one lesson that has been learned that, that starts from here or what? Like, what's that piece that can help that person do a good job in that three minutes that they might have to make the difference in the course of their organization? No pressure. 
<laughs> my last question, actually, the community is I'm going to put this community because I don't think Mark can answer this one. I think what does access mean for some of these ways that we teach, learn, and even scaffold research that I've heard from these examples is what does it mean to really be truly accessible in our global economy and world? Because I'm trying to think about the modes in which we learn and are there lessons we can take from this, I guess, experiment, expertise, and background, because we're going to have to think about um, the way we go forward, and it's not going to be anything. And I don't use the word normal. I want us to think about intentionality. So what ways can we we be intentional about thinking about access and access points to learning um, that maybe we didn't learn from 2012 and we can go back to reflect? So uh, Martin, that one's not on you. That's on the community. But I do want to thank all of you for actually posing some really interesting questions and things that I'm going to continue to think about. Um, so thanks for joining me for this episode and having a conversation. Thank you. Thank you, Laura. I like when Dave's on mute. Thanks. Everybody likes it better when I'm on mute. You've been listening to Between the Chapters with your host, Laura Pisquini. For more information or to subscribe to Between the Chapters and 25 Years of EdTech, visit 25years.opened.ca.